This is a Reconstruction Radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash freebooks for a PDF download of this book and for many other great Christian books. Backward Christian Soldiers, an Action Manual for Christian Reconstruction by Gary North, copyright 1984, published by Institute for Christian Economics, narrated by Alan Bailey. Chapter 8. Humanism's Chaplains Talk concerning a Christian world and life view is incredibly cheap. The test is this. What are the sources and standards for constructing a biblical alternative? The most important question of human knowledge is this one. By what standard? Is there some sort of universal reason which provides all mankind throughout all ages with a sufficient basis for making judgments? Or is the very idea of an intellectual neutrality a snare and a delusion? Historically, Christians and secularists have taken both sides. In their attempts to devise a universally valid intellectual defense of the faith, Christian apologists have appealed to natural law, or the law of non-contradiction, or some other common ground methodology. They have hoped that logic might bring rebellious men face to face with the claims of Christ. As Cornelius Van Til has demonstrated in numerous books, this appeal rests on the assumption of human autonomy, that is, the universally valid logic of human minds. It is an invalid presupposition. The only common ground is the sense of God's image in all men. Secularists, especially prior to the mid-1960s, also appealed to natural law or technocratic, non-ideological, pragmatic wisdom in order to convince men of the universal validity of one or another program of social reconstruction. However, since the mid-60s, this appeal increasingly has fallen on deaf ears. Marxists, revolutionaries of all brands, and systematic relativists have rejected the whole idea of a hypothetical universal logic. Marx always rejected the idea. If there is no neutrality in human thought, then there is certainly no neutrality in any society's law structure. Laws are written to prohibit certain actions. These laws rest on the presupposition that certain acts are inherently wrong according to a particular moral and religious order. There can be no law apart from a moral and religious law order, and this law order cannot possibly be neutral. Social Reconstruction If men are to work out the implications of their religious faiths, then they will attempt to reconstruct the external institutions of society in terms of a particular law order. Only a totally internalized religion can legitimately neglect the task of external renewal. It is, yet it is very difficult to imagine how such a totally internalized religion might even operate. How can we speak of ethics, human action within the framework of moral law, apart from external effects on other people and the creation. Even a pole-sitting ascetic is making a statement about his relationship with the world, and he has to have someone supply him with food, water, and clothing, not to mention volunteer bedpan services. 
He is absorbing the scarce economic resources of the creation in his attempt to demonstrate his supposed withdrawal from the affairs of mankind. He is making a statement about the proper way to live in this world, which implies a moral obligation on others either to imitate him or to acknowledge the legitimacy of his activities or inactivities. This is why it is impossible, or at least extraordinarily difficult, to imagine an ethical system which has no vision of social reconstruction, no blueprint for society at large. Yet it is popular today within Christian circles to make grandiose pronouncements concerning the immorality of grandiose pronouncements regarding society. No creed but the Bible, no law but love, we are told. A rigorous creed to be sure. And from this presupposition, men have created systematic ethical systems justifying retreat. The pilgrim motif replaces the Christian soldier motif. The social irrelevance of modern Christianity is defended on principle as if social irrelevance were an ethical goal to be pursued in a disciplined fashion. Nevertheless, when we examine the calls for social neutrality, we find that in all known cases the program of social neutrality winds up baptizing some humanistic program of social order. The Christian is told to make his peace with one or another non-Christian social order. The Christian is told to refrain from actively opposing and then replacing the prevailing social order. Christians are in the world, a geographical identification, but not of the world, a spiritual identification. The question is, should Christians attempt to subdue the world in an attempt to make it conform more closely to God's guidelines for external institutions? More to the point, are there biblical guidelines for social institutions? If not, have we not asserted a fundamentally demonic universe, wherein neither we nor the devil may be judged for our actions, since we have violated no godly standards? In short, isn't the argument for neutrality, neutrality in any sphere of human thought or life, an argument for autonomy? Isn't it an assertion of some universal king's ex, an ever-growing area of human action or inaction, in which God may not legitimately bring judgment precisely because he has no standards of actions that apply? Isn't the idea of social neutrality a defense of the idea that man and Satan can live beyond good and evil? Reconstruction Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was one of the most respected preachers in England. His books have been published and widely read in the United States as well. He was trained as a physician, but he left medical practice to become a minister. He became an important advocate of Christian surrender to the world, and because of his prominence, he, we should examine his blueprint for Christian inaction, or to be more precise, his blueprint for humanistic reformism. Dr. Lloyd Joyne spelled out the details of his thinking in an essay, The French Revolution and After, published in Britain in the book The Christian and the State in Revolutionary Time. His essay makes the following points. 1. Christians must not support the status quo. 2. 
Christians must work for reform. 3. All explicitly Christian reforms will fail. 4. Political conservatism is anti-Christian. 5. Free market economics must be rejected. These same five points can be found in the exposition of seemingly endless proclamations made by respectable, educated, and frequently quoted Christian leaders, especially those in the neo-evangelical camp, the Toronto camp, the reprinting neo-Puritan camp. This is the reigning ideology in the Grand Rapids, Toronto, Wheaton, Edinburgh, London-Amsterdam circuit. Here is the message from Dr. Lloyd-Jones. He admits that we must have a total world and life perspective. The Christian is not only to be concerned about personal salvation. It is his duty to have a complete view of life as taught in the Scripture. Page 101. This is a common theme of most educated Christian leaders, the need for a biblical perspective. It is this statement that is expected to serve as a sort of cleric's collar for truly progressive Christians, a means of distinguishing oneself from modern fundamentalism, whose advocates have not generally bothered themselves with questions of philosophy. Whether you're in Grand Rapids or Wheaton or London or Toronto, Christian academics will tell you of the need for a distinctly Christian perspective. That makes sense. The kicker is found in their universal unwillingness to use revealed biblical law as the blueprint for constructing a Christian alternative. This is absolutely crucial, since without a concrete biblical blueprint, there is nothing left except some humanist humanist blueprint. In short, talk concerning a Christian world and life view is incredibly cheap. The test is this, what are the sources and standards for constructing a biblical alternative? Second, Dr. Lloyd-Jones was adamant in opposing three important errors. One, the status quo. Two, explicitly Christian political reform. Three, otherworldliness. Page 103 to 105. The only trouble is he never says how you can avoid all three simultaneously. The worst evil is the status quo since historically it has been the greatest danger. Page 102. He minces no words. For some strange reason one of the greatest temptations to a man who becomes a Christian is to become respectable. When he becomes a Christian he also tends to make money. And if he makes money, he wants to keep that money and resents the suggestion that he should share that money with others by means of taxation, etc. Looking at history, it seems to me that one of the greatest dangers confronting the Christian is to become a political conservative and an opponent of legitimate reform and the legitimate rights of people. Page 103. Here we have it. The evils of political conservatism. He recognizes that there is a tendency for Christians to make money. Hmm. Sadly, he refuses to speculate concerning the reasons for this tendency to exist. And exist it does, Deuteronomy 8 and 28. But men who make money don't appreciate being forced by state bureaucrats 
to contribute money to the care and maintenance of statist power. That is, welfare programs used for the purchase of votes for politicians, what Rush Dooney has called the politics of guilt and pity. This, the good doctor argues, is an evil attitude on the part of Christians. They don't like to share their wealth with the state. The state, by implication, has a perfect right to the wealth of hard-working, thrifty, risk-taking Christians who have prospered financially. This is called the legitimate rights of the people. It's also called Keynesianism, interventionism, statism, the new economics, political liberalism, the New Deal, the welfare state, the corporate state, and in the 1930s was known as fascism. It is theft with a ballot box instead of a gun. It is the Christian liberals' rewriting of the Sixth Commandment. Thou shalt not steal except by majority vote. It is the economics of most voters in Grand Rapids, Toronto, Wheaton, Edinburgh, London, and especially Amsterdam. He recognizes the Anglo-Saxon Protestant nonconformist. Those opposed to an established state church have traditionally been political reformists. These people were defenders of 19th century political liberalism, political equality but with economic freedom. He also recognizes that those defending the idea of a cultural mandate, General Genesis 1.28, tend to be political reformers as do the Marxist liberation theologians. In his interview in Christianity Today, February 8, 1980, he made clear his attitude toward the cultural mandate concept. Carl F.H. Henry asked him, from the perspective of neo-evangelicalism, would you agree that even if we might have only 24 or 48 hours to withhold a witness in the political or any other arena is to withdraw prematurely from the social responsibility of the Christian and to distrust the providence of God? Might he not do something even in the last few hours that he had not done before? The closer we get to the end time, isn't it that much more important to address public conscience? Must we not press the claims of Christ in all areas of society and remind people, whether they receive Christ or not, of the criteria by which the returning king will actually judge men and nations? This is an excellent question. Whether asked by a neo-evangelical or neo-Dorwedian nor a, or a Christian Reconstructionist. Dr. Lloyd-Jones' answer is quite, was quite explicit. No, I'm afraid I don't agree. It seems to me that our Lord's own emphasis is quite different, even opposed to this. Take Luke 17, where we read, As it was in the days of Noah, so it shall be also in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives until the day that Noah entered into the ark and the flood came. You can't reform the world. That's why I disagree entirely with the social and cultural mandate teaching and its appeal to Genesis 1.28. It seems to me to forget completely the fall. You can't Christianize the world. The end time is going to be like the 
time of the flood. The condition of the modern world proves that what we must preach more than ever is escape from the wrath to come. The situation is critical. I believe the Christian people, but not the church, should get involved in politics and in social affairs. The kingdom task of the church is to save men from the wrath to come by bringing them to Christ. This is what I believe and emphasize. The main function of politics, culture, and all these things is to restrain evil. They can never do any ultimate positive work. Surely the history of the world demonstrates that. You can never Christianize the world. End quote. This tends to be the answer of the older fundamentalism. Escape from the wrath to come, forget about Christian reconstruction of the world. But what does the what does he expect Christian people to do? Of course, it is not normally the task of the institutional church to get into the political arena. But that isn't the question. What about Christian men and women in voluntary political or other organizations? What can they expect to accomplish? Hardly anything, says the good doctor. They are in a losing battle. As he wrote in his 1975 essay, We are now back to the New Testament position. We are like New Testament Christians. The world can never be reformed. Never. That is absolutely certain. A Christian state is impossible. All the experiments have failed. They had to fail. They must fail. The apocalypse alone can cure the world's ills. Man, even at his best, even as a Christian, can never do so. You can never make people Christian by acts of parliament. You can never Christianize society. It is folly to attempt to do so. I would even suggest it is heresy to do so. Here is his constant theme. Men are sinful, the world is fallen, therefore perfection is impossible. As he told Carl Henry, the cultural mandate was given to Adam before the fall, we live as in the days of Noah. What he conveniently neglects, and he could not conceivably be ignorant of the passage, is that God gave the same cultural mandate to Noah after the flood in Genesis 9, 1-7. It should be obvious why Dr. Lloyd-Jones conveniently neglects that passage. It spells the doom of his entire misinterpretation of the Bible. We cannot escape the moral burden of the cultural mandate. What I have called the Dominion Covenant, just because of man's ethical rebellion. We are the sons of Noah. Christian reconstruction is supposedly impossible. However, we can work as Christians for reform. He calls status wealth redistribution legitimate reform. He then appeals to the tradition of Abraham Kuyper. I find his conclusions most illuminating, especially in regard to, to the similarities drawn by Lloyd-Jones between the political careers of the Netherlands Kuyper and, and Britain's first radical prime minister, Lloyd George. Nevertheless, quote, Nevertheless, government and law and order are essential because man is in sin, and the Christians should be the best citizen in the country. But as all are sinful, reform is legitimate and desirable. The Christian must act as a citizen and play his part in politics and other matters in order to get the best possible conditions. But we must always remember that politics is the art of the possible, and so the Christian must remember as he begins that he can only get the possible. 
Because he is a Christian, he must work for the best possible and be content with that which is less than fully Christian. That is what Abraham Kuyper seems to me to have done. I have recently read the life of Kuyper again, and it is clear that his enactments as prime minister and head of the government were almost identical with the radicalism of Lloyd George. They were two very different men in many ways, but their practical enactments are almost identical. The chief respect in which they differed was in their view of education. Page 108, end quote. This is damning Kuiper with faint praise. Kuiper wanted government subsidies to Christian schools, while Lloyd George wanted the destruction of all private education. Both men were caught up in the ideology of economic interventionism by the state, and this tradition still dominates the Toronto, Amsterdam, Grand Rapids Dutch tradition, as well as the British Protestant tradition. Yet there is almost nothing in the Old or New Testament to warrant such a view of the state, which is why these Christian defenders of the welfare state are unable to appeal to a body of biblical doctrine which might support their position. So we are told individual action in support of the welfare state is valid, but reform in the name of Christianity is by definition impossible, and therefore invalid, since politics is the art of the possible. He makes himself perfectly clear. We have no hope. Quote again, I now come to what to me in many ways is the most important matter of all. I suggest that this is the main conclusion at which the conference should arrive. The Christian must never get excited about reform or about political action. That raises for me a problem with respect to the men of the 17th century and other times. It is that they should have become so excited about these matters. I would argue that the Christian must of necessity have a profoundly pessimistic view of life in this world. Man is in sin and therefore you will never have a perfect society. The coming of Christ alone is going to produce that. The Christian not only does not get excited, he never pins his hopes to acts of parliament or any reform or any improvement. He believes in improvement, but he never pins his hope in it. He never gets excited or overenthusiastic, still less does he become fanatical or bigoted about these matters. Page 108, quote. We must be pessimistic. Why doesn't he say... We just ought to be. Then, given this pessimism, we have to face a pessimistic reality. We can never expect perfection. Therefore, reform is impossible. We can work for it, but we should never get excited about it. Here is counsel of despair, the psychology of defeat. Here is also verbal tomfoolery. What if I were to use this same line of reasoning against the legitimacy of the institutional church? First, we know we can never see a perfect church prior to Christ's second coming. Second, we should not get enthusiastic about church reform. Third, a Christian never puts his faith in church courts or synods or whatever, since the church can never be perfect anyway. By equating Christianity with perfection, Lloyd-Jones thereby emasculates applied Christianity. 
he negates institutional reform in the name of anti-perfectionism. The same syllogism, if applied to the institutional church, would destroy the institutional church, just as surely as it destroys the idea of a Christian social order. The premise, pessimism, is wrong. The goal, earthly perfection, is not, we ha- is not what we have in mind, and the means, biblical law, is totally ignored. Establishment religion. What Lloyd-Jones wants is simple, the triumph of irrelevance. If he didn't want it, he wouldn't argue so vehemently for its inevitability, especially in the face of the biblical testimony favoring victory in time and on earth, not perfection, but victory. See J.M. Kick's The Eschatology of Victory, published by Presbyterian and Reform Publishing Company uh, in New Jersey. I am reminded of C.S. Lewis's words, In a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. We made men without chest and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We castrate and bid the geldings to be fruitful. The Abolition of Man, page 35. What he calls for and for what the overwhelming majority of widely read, academically respectable Christians call for is the defense of the status quo of the late 20th century. The modern status quo being Darwinian or Marxist or in some other way evolutionistic is based on the idea of change, whether reformist or revolutionary. It wants more government, not less. More state welfare, not less. More coercively enforced economic equality, not less. More taxation of the productive, not less. The modern status quo is the status quo of constant change, government-enforced experimentation. This is the legacy of the French Revolution, which Lloyd-Jones is so worried about, yet he has adopted, though without its original optimism. He wants an economy of tinkering bureaucrats, for that is what the welfare state invariably produces, and he wants a welfare state. Because the language of the modern status quo is the language of change, Our modern academic, non-fundamentalist Christians can wrap themselves in the flag of progress and change when that flag is, in fact, the flag of the status quo. They can ignore biblical reconstruction. Indeed, they feel compelled to to oppose biblical reconstruction, which would forever abolish the humanist welfare state with its constant economic intervention. These men are defenders of the humanist evolutionary state. They are chaplains of humanism's bureaucracy. They are the transmission belt of Fabianism in the world of evangelical Christianity. Their job is to keep the silent Christian majority forever silent, or where the majority is no longer Christian, to keep the Christian minority fearful, despondent, and impotent. They have done uh, their job very well. They have been supremely victorious in this century in promoting the psychology of perpetual Christian defeat. Chaplains for the status quo, they have paraded in the uniforms of impossibility thinking, the impossibility of Christian reconstruction in today's society of humanistic evolutionism. 
What Lloyd-Jones really resented was the free market. He shared his resentment with others in the Grand Rapids, Toronto, Wheaton, Edinburgh, London, Amsterdam axis. He reserved his worst epithet for the free market Arminian. Arminianism overstresses liberty. It produced the laissez-faire view of economics and it always introduces inequalities, some people becoming enormously wealthy and others languishing in poverty and destitution. Page 106. Get this. The free market introduces inequality. It apparently wasn't there before. This is not only poor logic, but it is inaccurate historically. As the voluminous researches of Professor P.T. Bauer and other economists have demonstrated, the free market reduces economic inequality, and it also erodes the barriers, the status quo status barriers, that tend to prevent upward and downward economic mobility. What is so unique about Lloyd-Jones' resentment? Nothing. It is the standard run-of-the-mill pap that has been stuffed into the heads of two generations of American college students and three generations of British college students. It is the same old Fabianism, the same old Keynesianism. It is the status quo. So using the language of anti-status quo, Dr. Lloyd-Jones joined the ranks of the ordained chaplaincy of humanist conformity. He was a conformist conformist, and he was therefore granted the right to use the language of progressive reformism so long as it was not promoted in the name of Christianity, so long as it, is, it has abandoned any appeal to Old Testament law, and so long as it abandoned hope. Is it any wonder that leadership like this has produced generations of socially impotent Christians? Is it any wonder that humanism in the form of the welfare state has triumphed? In the realm of society, the salt has lost its savor. We have been afflicted with chaplains who have actively promoted savorless salt. The sheep need better shepherds. They need shepherds who are not front men for political humanism's wool. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.